Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Doug Johnson, who is an award-winning writer, musician and journalist based in Edinburgh, whose 12th novel, The Big Chill, was published by Arenda Books in August 2020. It is the second in a three-book series inspired by his time as a writer-in-residence with a firm of funeral directors. Doug was also previously writer-in-residence at the University of Strathclyde, where he had worked as a lecturer in creative writing. Well, he is also a Royal Literary Fund Consultant Fellow. He has also taught creative writing at festivals and conferences and has also mentored aspiring writers. And for over 20 years, he has also worked as a freelance arts journalist, primarily covering music and literature. Not only that, he's also a singer, a musician and a songwriter with three solo EPs and five albums in various bands to his name. And also plays the drums for the fun-loving crime writers, an impressive crime writing supergroup, which features Val McDermott, Mark Billingham, Chris Brookmeyer, Stuart Neville and Luca Vesti. Doug is also one of the co-founders of the Scotland Writers Football Club, for whom he also puts in a shift in midfield as player manager. And he also has a degree in physics, a PhD in nuclear physics and a diploma in journalism. Doug, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. That is a, an impressive CV of which I only just skimmed over. I could have gone into a lot more detail. It makes me sound really busy, doesn't it? But I don't know. I don't feel, I don't feel that busy. But I guess if you just stay alive long enough, there's, there's plenty of stuff to put on your CV. Well, it's funny when I was just, uh, you know, looking obviously just the body of work that you've got. I mean, even just the fact that you're, I think your first novel came out was it 2006. You're now on to your 12th novel. And that's, that's yeah. an impressive amount of work. Not only just impressive in terms of the quantity, but, you know, if you start to look at your novels have been shortlisted for, you know, for example, the McIlvany Prize for Scottish Crime Novels. So it's like quality as well as quantity. So you must be pleased that, obviously, with your output, but the way it's been received. Yeah, it's interesting. I always think about Ian Rankin uh, and he asked about, you know, how, how, how do you get a career in writing? He always says, uh, there's two things. You need to get lucky and stay lucky. And uh, I really appreciate that. I mean, he's kind of, he's denigrating himself there. About, I mean, he's obviously a skillful writer and he's got talent, but then, you know, talent does get you so far, but then there's perseverance and, you know, luck. And, and I've kind of been, yeah, that first novel came out in 2006. Uh, it, that seems like now, you know, like a different person that wrote that almost. I had two books with Penguin and then I switched I've been through a few agents and a few publishers in my time as well, which is absolutely standard uh, for any writers. So the writer's life, you get used to rejection, but I think longevity is is always the key. It's not something I think the writers think about at the start. At the start, they want to get published and they see that as the kind of end point, but really that's the starting point. Um, you know, if you're going to try and make a career, I mean, I know so many people who have had one novel published or two novels, two books published and kind of disappeared or struggled to, to stay in the in the spotlight so uh, so i'm just i'm just incredibly happy that, that i seem to be finding readers and finding an audience and finding publishers that are, that are still happy to publish my work i mean i, I like that quote from ian rankin as you say it's it's uh, self-deprecating when you think of the, the quality and the quantity of his work but a lot of it is hard work there's there's that element a lot you talk about that's the the quality of the writing but sometimes it's just that hard graft of sitting there you know day after day and, and 
you know, before we, we started recording, you mentioned you'd, during the lockdown, you'd managed to get the first draft of the third, is it the third book in the series that I'd mentioned? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, again, that's just, I suppose, the discipline of sitting down and just getting on with the work. Yeah, it's really, it's really banal advice. Like, you know, because, you know, I'll do loads of, like, creative writing, you know, courses and stuff like that and events, obviously. Uh, and you always get asked, you know, you know, people want to steal your mojo a little bit and find out how you, how you manage to get published and stuff. And it's so, but the real advice is always so banal. It's just keep your, get your bum on a seat and write. You know, um, you know, you learn so much by just continuing to write, continuing to read, because you get better, you know, you improve your craft if you, if you work diligently at it. And yeah, and I found, um, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a sort of creature of routine much more now. I've got two kids and they're like, um, they're a bit older now. One's a teenager and one's 11. So I can safely go like, here's two hours when I can get some peace. You know, that wasn't the case when the kids are small, you know, when you can't. Yeah carve out that time but but back then I used to I used to carve out time whenever I mean the, my first book came out um, just after my first child was born I was the house husband because my wife had had an office job so I was looking after him and then when the second one came along I was looking after both of them and, and finding half an hour right here and there so I mean these days it, it feels easier because my life's easier a little bit and for the most recent thing it was weird that during the during lockdown like I know loads of writers who really struggle to write because I think psychologically they were just freaking out. You know, you're in survival pandemic mode uh, and that's all you can think about, which I totally get. But I found it really, I found it really helpful and almost therapeutic to just go every day, right, from 11 till 1 every day, I'm going to sit down and write, you know, at least 1,200 words and I had a target and it's going to be a chapter and I'm going to get it done. And I got it, I did it every day, basically wrote every day, you know, for three or four months and that's, and that's a book. And I could escape into this world and there wasn't any COVID and there wasn't anything else happening. It was just what I was creating, which was great. Do you think the fact that, you know, obviously I mentioned you're, you've been working in journalism for so many years, just that idea of setting yourself effectively deadlines and targets to meet? Because obviously when you're working in journalism, that's what you have. And it's a really good discipline to have as well. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I think a lot of that comes from the fact that I was a journalist before I was a, a novelist. Uh, and I don't want to, I don't want to diss any writers who suffer from writer's block. You know, there's all sorts of psychological things happening that can affect people. But I've never suffered for it because I mean, because there's not a journalist on the planet who suffers from writer's block. Because as soon as you do, you get sacked. And I used to, and I was a freelance. I mean, basically, but I used to also work. I mean, I went through a while working on the arts desk at the Evening News when you had. I mean, that back in the day when. I remember we used to fill, we had to fill two pages a day. And then on a Thursday, we had like 12 page supplement or something like that, you know? So we had to come up with words to fill pages. Uh, and, you know, you just do it. You just get it done. And then as well as that, the other brilliant experience from that was self-editing, like not being precious about what you write. Uh, and I actually prefer the editing, the redrafting process to the writing, I think, because when I was working at that evening news desk, it would be like, right, we need 1500 words on Bob Dylan and this was kind of before you could just cut and paste everything from the internet so you'd write it and then they'd sell half a page of a car advert and so you had to cut it to 800 words and then you had to cut it to 400 words because they sold another quarter page ad and then you were like so so you just chop you just chop it and it's like oh well, you spent ages writing it and then ages chopping it away so I, I don't have a problem with that I mean obviously in the course of the podcast we'll chat about again more about your writing career and also your book choices just one final question when I mentioned Ian Rankin there and I mentioned the fact you 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 play drums in the, the fun loving crime writers the supergroup. When you look at that, it's some an impressive lineup. Is ever asked to to be part of that supergroup? <laughs> no. He's doing his own thing, isn't he? He's got his own band, like what they call the uh, Best Picture. And they like, I mean, he's the only fiction writer in the band. The others are the other guys are journalists, I think. 
But they, they, I'm not sure if they're still playing or not, but they they brought out a couple of singles and, you know, they were like writing their own material. We're, we're just a covers band, really. So, uh, no, we're, we're quite happily coexist uh, in the same in the same universe, but never the twain shall meet, I think, probably. Well, listen, was it not, was it not Glastonbury you was playing? <laughs> yeah, we played Glastonbury last year, which was, uh, I mean, it, the, the band's inc- been incredible. I mean, it started not as a joke. I mean, it started as a sort of piss up, you know, in, uh, in New Orleans. We, some of us were there at a book festival and they had an open mic night and we just busked a couple of songs like, a, you know, Johnny Cash and 500 Miles and something else. And, uh, and it just kind of snowballed from there. We came back home and formed the band and played the Edinburgh Book Festival. And it's that's three years ago now. So it's kind of snowballed. And unfortunately, we had, yeah, so we played Glassman last year, which was crazy. Um, but it was brilliant. And we're quite a good festival band, actually, because it's all like we're playing songs by The Clash and The Jam and Johnny Cash and Elvis Costello. Like people know it. People come up, come in the tent and go, oh, this sounds good. And they, and they hang around. So it's, it's quite a good vibe. In terms of the, the podcast, I'm going to take you on your literary journey of your life, as it were. And I always ask people, is your favourite book from childhood? And the one you chose, it was one of the, the books from the, the Asterix series. And that's Asterix in Britain. Yeah, I, I used to love that. I mean, you know, it's not a very, it's not a very literary answer, is it? I'm sure you get authors on, uh, you know, who are reading, I don't know, To Kill a Mockingbird and uh, Catcher in the Rye and all these stuff when they were like really young. But I loved the Asterix books. Uh, and the other thing I really loved was the Charlie Brown books. For some reason, we had a whole bunch of like Peanuts cartoon books in the house, which I just thought were brilliant. But the Asterix books were great. I just, I, I, I mean, on a really basic level, you know, there's, they're really well written and really well illustrated for that age i guess i would have been i don't know seven eight whatever nine something like that and and there's full of like ridiculous sort of slapstick humor and like knockabout violence you know because it's all about asterix and obelix beating up romans that's essentially in a different scenario each single book but the but the asterix in britain one uh i just like my original copy it felt a bit so i read it so much because it just has it's so many jokes in it about about britain <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant and of course, it's written from a French point of view. And so it's got all these ridiculous jokes about, you know, about British culture now, but transposed 2000 years ago or whatever. And there's just loads of stuff. There's loads of, loads of phrases in it. I reread it recently, actually, you know, after you asked me about this, I reread it. And there was stuff that I, there was like, still phrases that, that ring in my head that, I, that come into my mind when, when things happen. It's, it's hilarious. I wonder as well, you know, that way, particularly when you're, when you're a child, and you get that love of reading. The fact that it's a series of books, so you read one and you like it, and then you can go back and get the next one, and the next one, and I'm sure libraries up and down the country had all those books that, and then you're suddenly engaged in that series. Yeah, there were so many of them, and like I'm sure, I'm pretty sure I learned like almost everything I know about history I learned from the <laughs> Asterix books, and quite a lot of geography as well. Like there's this running, there's a, there's several running jokes in Asterix in Britain. One is about how it suddenly gets foggy all the time. Like they just stand about, and then suddenly it just gets foggy. Uh, and there's a the thing where they all drink warm beer, which is like, and then Asterix and Obelix. As French, as French people are like, are basically going, what the fuck is this? That's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, there's a token Scottish guy in it who's just all like, totally like, hootsmon, hudger weest, and all this stuff. <laughs> and there's a, there's a bit in it because they all drink, they basically stop, like everyone in Britain stops at 5pm to drink hot water for some reason, for a little ritual. And so they, wrote, they can't fight the Romans. And then it's a long convoluted, convoluted story. Basically, Asterix invents tea because Getafix has brought some like herbs back from the Far East and he chucks it in their water and pretends it's a magic potion. And so they drink it. So basically the idea is that Asterix invented, he brought tea to Britain. And it's, like, it's, totally, it's so utterly stupid, but I loved it. 
No, I was going to, I don't know if it's quite a disclaimer, but just in case anybody's listening who's never read the books, in case they're slightly alarmed that there's that Asterix is, is swearing in the books, he would just emphasize <laughs> the point. If there is, if there's swearing in it, it's in Latin, because there's, there's another running joke about pirates who talk in Latin. And there's all sorts of, I mean, the whole series are brilliant, like you say, like in the Asterix and the Great Crossing, they basically discover America by accident. And when they go to Egypt, like Asterix and Cleopatra, like oh, half the Egyptians are talking in hieroglyphics and <laughs> stuff like that. Like the little speech bubbles are just full of like hieroglyphics. It's, I mean, there's so many good jokes, visual gags as well. Do you know what I thought was amazing when I was just uh, looking into the books ahead of talking to you? It's 38 volumes published, but it's still going. I think the most recent one was published last October, October 2019. And so they've still, effectively, they've kept the franchise going. But the guy, the co-creator, was a guy called Alberto Uderzo, I think it was. He only passed away earlier this year, although he'd stopped writing the books or working on the books maybe about 10, 11 years ago, but I hadn't realised that they were still producing new ones. Yeah, well, there was, a, there was I think there was a big lull. I mean, there was a, I couldn't tell you the exact number, but when I was a kid, there was already about 20. And I, and I don't think there was any new ones for a long time. And then I think they got a new, they got a new collaborator in for um, Uderzo. Um, so I think there were some of them, there was some argument those ones weren't so good, but I mean, you know, I mean, but they must, I mean, I don't know what the sales would be like on those Asterix books, but they'd be like millions and millions and millions. I mean, they're hugely internationally successful. And there's a theme park, isn't there? There's a French theme park, I think. There's another Asterix world or some, whatever it's called. So, I, think, I mean, it makes sense from a publishing point of view for them to try and keep that going as much as they can. There was certainly one film that was made, I don't know how successful it was, a few years back. I'm sure it, I'm sure it was transferred to the big screen, but I, I don't think it quite replicated what the books were. Yeah, it was, that a live, it was a live action, wasn't it, with actors, wasn't it? I never saw it, but yeah, it didn't, I, I remember hearing it didn't go down particularly well. Yeah, and there's a really, I mean, it's actually, reading back, there's a really sort of sharp comedy to them. Like, they're, they're not mucking around. There's quite a lot of social commentary about things thrown in there as well. Part, you know, but it's, but it's kind of hidden by, I mean, I mean it's essentially the, the story of, like, you know, rebels fighting against the establishment, isn't it? Because the Roman Empire are trying, you know, trying to take over their little Gaulish village and they're like the only people that can, that can hold out against it. And so there's quite a lot of that stuff in there, but, it, but it's in amongst running jokes and slapstick humour, so it, you get away with it, I think. Because one of the things, again, the best children's books, obviously they appeal to children in a certain level, in a certain way, as you say, there's, but there's something underlying that will either appeal to adults at the time, parents, so they'll, they'll enjoy reading it, or as you say, when you go back to it as an adult, there's still bits in it that maybe you didn't realise at the time, but appeals to you on a different level then. And there's stuff I didn't really understand probably the first time, like there's a scene in Asterix in Britain where Obelix gets drunk because there's a confu- they've got a barrel of magic potion and they confuse it with barrels of wine and beer and they have to taste, test everything to make sure. Anyway, Obelix gets drunk and he, never, he, he normally only drinks like boar's milk apparently. So he gets steaming and then he has a really bad hangover. And like, so there's a whole joke about that, which of course I didn't really understand at all at the time, but it's actually really funny. I mean, they're not, I mean, they're playing it for laughs, but it's also quite, it's slightly pointy as well, because he, when he gets his hangover, he doesn't understand, because it's the first time he's ever been drunk, uh, and it's just totally bamboozled by why he feels bad. It's, it's brilliant. Is that quite a nice experience? As you say, you just read it not that long ago, just to read it as an adult and maybe take you back, just those memories of when you were a wee guy reading it originally? Yeah, it was actually, because I think, because um, I mean, like I said, like that Asterix in Britain one, because they come in different sizes, that you know, there's quite a sort of big, almost A4 format or whatever, quite glossy ones. We had some of them, but they also they came in a sort of cheaper pocket size, black and white as well. And so I had both and like loads of the ones I had were basically falling to bits by, by the end because I'd read them so much. The ones that survived from when I was a kid, 
my mum and dad have still got them in a cupboard somewhere. And, and I remember when the, our kids were a bit younger and we'd go up and stay with them. I'd pull them out and the old um, the old peanuts, the old Charlie Brown books as well. And the kids really liked them because they're they're pretty simple and they're easy to read. You know, they're not too taxing and they're not too long. And they've got lots of visual gags and lots of um, lots of vocabulary gags as well. Like all the um, like all the characters' names are all like jokes as well. I think the only ones that aren't jokes are Asterix and Obelix. Well, they're kind of jokes, but I guess you get used to them. But I mean, you know, get a fix and vital statistics and all these kind of other guys. I've, I've spoken to people before where sometimes they've gone back and revisited their favourite kids' books or books from when they were kids with their own children. And it hasn't always stood the test of time. But it's quite nice when that does, as you say, when your kids were younger and they were actually able to enjoy those books as children as well. I no, it was good. I mean, I, my, you know, they've kind of moved on now. My son doesn't really read because he's a gamer and he's just, you know, he's a teenage boy, so it's really hard to get him in, interested in books. My daughter reads sort of like kind of emotional dramas about girls her age. She's into that. So, um, but yeah, for a little while they were into that sort of thing. And I'm very wary of that idea of passing down stuff. Because, you know, I, I don't like that thing of like, you know, you sometimes see kind of mates my age saying, oh, like my little boy was just listening to Mogwai the other day. Oh, my job's done. It's like, well, you know, that's just you putting your own, <laughs> your own um, opinions onto the kids. Like, let them find their own stuff. And my music, you know, my kids both love talk, completely different music. My son's mad into like hardcore rap and hip hop. So it's like, I'm always slightly aware of that. But it's nice when it happens, you know, if they, if they can get into books that you used to like as well, then, then great. But I, I wouldn't say there's anything profound about it. It gives you a nice little feeling, but you know, so what? Um, in terms of your own reading then, if I take you on from your favourite book from childhood, and I've kind of called it Teenage Student Formative Years. The book you've chosen, you said you were, you were slightly older, you read it in your early 20s but it had a massive impact on you, and that's Train Spotting by Evan Welsh. I mean, it's all, it is a cliche for, I guess, people of my generation to name-check that book, but, um, I mean, there were certainly things... I mean, I was... In, as a kid, I, I grew up in Arbroath, and um, it seemed like the back of beyond, and, you know, for us, the big city was Dundee. And I remember, like, school, the fiction that we were reading... I mean, I was really interested in reading and writing in those days, but the stuff we got at school was just all by... Oxbridge dead people you know it's like I don't think we read anything that was written in the 20th century for a long time and I was really frustrated by that and there was a couple of things my, my dad had been an English teacher at a different school and he he handed me a couple of books I remember Raymond Carver short stories um, which were just about ordinary people and um, which I loved and I read I picked up The Wasp Factory by Ian Banks at some point that would have been in my late teens which was kind of about, I mean, it's a kind of horror novel, but it's its about people living in rural East Coast Scotland, you know, and I, I recognised the way they spoke to each other and all that kind of stuff, which was a kind of, which was mind-blowing for me. And then Irvin Welsh was like that times times a million, because, you know, I was living in Edinburgh at the time. I was I came to Edinburgh as a student in 1988. I had, I had a degree at that point, but I was still a student. I was doing postgrad stuff. I, I just, and there was nothing like, I mean, looking back now, there were a few things like it, but not that we, not that anyone was aware of. I mean, Alan Warner and Gordon Legg and uh, people like that all had little short stories and Kevin Williamson was publishing people with Rebel Inc. Uh, around that time. But I remember when Trainspotting came out, I mean, there was a buzz about it. You know, it's famously, it's famously the most, probably apocryphal and a total lie, but it's allegedly the most stolen book of all time from bookshops. I was speaking to Alan Bissett about this on the, on the podcast recently, yeah. and that was the same thing. I'd, I'd heard that as well. I, th- I thought they'd actually, they almost made a virtue of that. I think they did, yeah. And there was a ridiculous quote on it saying, I remember on the, on the front cover saying, 
this book deserves to be bigger than the Bible or something like that. I mean, it was, I mean, it was, it was classic sort of early nineties Britpop bullshit marketing, but it was, but it worked, you know, and this is a few years before the film came out, but it was, I mean, it was like, there was nothing like it. There was nothing, I hadn't come, come across anything like it. And the book itself is quite weird. You know, it's like, I know Irvin a bit and um, he would be the first to say he doesn't think it's his best book because he didn't really know what he was doing. It was, a, it was really a collection of just stories and tales. He was just writing down stuff about the world he saw around him and the people he knew and things like that. And it gradually sort of coalesced. I mean, it is a bit all over the place, structural and stuff like that, but the language of it and just the energy of it uh, and the people it was depicting and the kind of lives that they were living, it was a massive eye-opener. And I think a whole, a whole generation of writers in Scotland were suddenly aware that they could write about everyday stuff that they saw about them. And it could be literature. Stuff like that obviously had happened in Scotland before, like James Kelman and stuff like that, and, you know, Alistair Gray to a certain extent. But this was, I don't know, this just seemed uh, younger and more, it just seemed, uh, spoke to our experience uh, more clearly, I think. Because I think probably as, as readers and as writers, when you're reading a book, not of, only of your time, but of your place and in your own language, you can't, as you, as you mentioned, when you're at school, you're reading books from a different century. So you can't relate to them as much as, as you, you open that book and not only you know where he's talking about, but you can, you can recognise the characters, you can recognise the language, and it kind of it opens up a whole, as you say, as a writer, but also, I think, as readers, of what is possible in, in literature. Yeah, it, it really does. It basically gave an entire generation of people permission to write. Honestly, it really did, which it seems weird to say that, but, but it's just, you know, it's like that. You know, the thing about representation now, you know, you have to see it to be it you know, which is usually used in, in reference to, you know, race and stuff like that. But it certainly was the case. It felt like for for me and for people like me who were trying to... I mean, I, I was writing. I was writing short stories then. But I didn't think... I mean, I'd certainly had no concept of getting them published or anything like that. I mean, I didn't even know if there was a publishing industry in Scotland. And I knew that, you know, if there was one, it was in London and it was full of posh people. So um, it was kind of amazing to me that, that a book like Train Spotting even got published in the first place. And I think, it, weirdly, I think it would be quite, I think Irvin has probably said this, that it, a book like that would struggle to get published now, weirdly, because I think the industry is a lot more conservative than it used to be, uh, certainly, in, certainly in the UK. And I don't think it would, a book like that would get the necessary attention that it maybe got back then because it was so new, I think. You mentioned there that you, you were already writing short stories. And again, when I was given the introduction, it's obviously quite a different career path you've chosen from maybe what you were, you were studying. Originally, you know, you had a degree in physics, PhD in nuclear physics, and you worked in was it the aeronautics industry for a while. And then you, you know, you've gone completely, obviously, focused on the, on the writing. But was that always something that, that was there within you? Yeah, it was. I did it at school and I really enjoyed it. And I, I kept that going at university, but I was... I never really took it seriously, like writing fiction. I was doing it all the time. So you're right, I was studying physics. I came to Edinburgh, I studied physics, uh, and I did a PhD, and then I worked for four years as an engineer, a uh, software engineer in the, for Marconi, as was then, in Edinburgh. Yeah, air, aerospace stuff, which I hated that job, by the way. I couldn't stand it, because I just, I just didn't care about it. But the whole time I was writing, but I wasn't really taking it seriously. What I would do is, I would have an idea for a story and sort of kick it around for a while, and eventually... I'd write a draft and then I might send it into like a competition or an anthology or, or something if I heard about anything like that. But it was all kind of half-arsed, really, to be honest. And it was stuff like reading, train spotting, and then um, Alan Warner's uh, Morvan Caller and things like that. And, you know, in the wake of Irvin Welsh came a sort of a rush of 
similar kind of books, some of them, you know, better than others. And it was only, I kind of, I, I never really got around to taking the writing seriously for a long time. And in fact, like you say, I mean, I quit being an engineer and started working as a journalist. And it was then, I think, that I started to take my fiction writing seriously because I was writing for a day job. Like I was probably busier than I ever had been because I, I didn't have a nine to five thing anymore. But what I found was working as an engineer, I would do nine to five and then I would just come in and just be wiped out. Like just like, I had no energy, no creative energy. You know, I'd have a few beers and a smoke and just like, you know, crash out. Uh, and I couldn't stand it, basically. Compared to that, when I started freelancing, I was busier than ever, you know, hustling for work. But I was writing for a living. I was interviewing bands. I was going to gigs. I was writing book reviews, restaurants, films, you know, features, anything, honestly, anything, lifestyle stuff. And so I was just kind of got into the habit of writing and really enjoying writing. And it still took a while. But then I thought, I thought maybe short stories only for me. And I started to uh, work on a novel, which, you know, took years because I didn't know what I was doing and then got rejected. But, it, you know, it was the start. It was the start of the journey for me, that definitely. I mean, in terms of, you know, you said you were obviously writing short stories and then kind of working on a novel. Had you had any short stories published during that time at all? Or was it something that you were just working away in the background? No, no thankfully, no, because <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure they were terrible. And, uh, and uh, it's so long ago that they're probably uh, on like floppy disk or something. I'm sure I couldn't, I'm sure I don't have them anymore. Uh, no, I hadn't have anything published. The first thing I ever got published was my first novel, Tombstone, which was not the first novel I wrote, actually, because I wrote, I wrote The Ossians, which was my second published novel. I wrote a version of The Ossians first because I was in bands. That's why I was doing music journalism, partly is because um, I knew loads of folk in bands and I was basically hanging out at the venue in Edinburgh five nights a week. And so the Ossians was about, it was about an unsigned indie band who fall apart on a tour of Scotland. Is that right about what you know? <laughs> I was using a lot of my own experience uh, of playing like, you know, shitty little venues and uh, when no one comes to see you. And so I wrote, a, I wrote a first version of that, which I, you know, again, at that point, I didn't know any, I don't think I'd ever spoken to another published writer. Uh, I didn't know any editors or agents or really who publishers were. I just bought the Writers and Artists Yearbook and looked through it and saw who might be interested in the kind of thing I was writing. Uh, and I emailed them all. And so anyway, long story short, it got rejected by everyone. I sent it to, but a couple of people rejected it quite nicely. Uh, a couple of editors um, said, well, I like this, but for various reasons, we can't publish it or it's not quite right for us or you're not quite there yet. But if you're doing anything else, um, if you're writing anything else, let us, you know, definitely let us see it, which was vital actually, because... I didn't know anyone else. And so it was kind of like, you know, maybe I'm not just pissing in the wind here. Maybe it's actually going to be, you know, I could do something here. So, so I started writing Tombstoning, uh, spurred on by that. And then when I finished that, quite a rough draft, actually, I sent it to both of them and uh, they both offered to publish it, which was amazing. And then I went back I went, and then this sort of the editing process of that first book kind of going through it, it was a real eye opener uh, for me. And then Having done that, I then went back and rewrote the Ossians myself, basically from scratch. I think I chopped out two thirds of it and started again, pretty much. And that became my second uh, published book. Because one thing I always want to, I always like to ask, especially you know, I mentioned you'd, you're now published twelve novels, but can you remember the the thrill the first time the first copy of your very first novel comes through the post and you get it in your hands and there you see it, you know, something that started off as a gem of an idea and it's now a book and your name's on the front cover. Yeah, it was pretty mad, actually. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really know anything about publishing industry. I, I kind of still, still don't. So what was interesting, Penguin, where I found out later on, Penguin were trying to sell it as a crime novel. I wasn't even aware it was a crime novel, but there you go. I mean, I suppose it probably is. 
but I haven't really. I certainly didn't occur to me at the time. I mean, it's it's not there's no cops in it, so. But yeah, no, it was I was really that was amazing actually. You know, having that and then um, just seeing that you know that book in a shop as well it was kind of it kind of blows you away actually. And you've got copies to sort of give to people <laughs> and stuff like that. And uh, I think I'm pretty sure the front cover's got a quote from Chris Brookmeyer on it saying, you know, saying nice things about it, which was like fucking amazing because, you know, I'd read, I'd been a fan of Chris's, you know, since the first book of his. So um, so I was like, holy crap, that's, uh, that's brilliant. You're listening to Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Doug Johnson. Doug, we're on to the third book in the podcast choice, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book that you've gone for is Come Closer by Sarah Grand. Yes, I love this book. Um, You quite often get asked, which writers do you know are underrated? Uh, And I think Sarah Grand is is the worst offender on that. She's the most underrated writer, I think. I love her. I love her book. She's uh, she's a brilliant writer. She's American, American woman. She has now published six novels, I think. Uh, so the first three were all kind of separate standalones, and this this was our second book or third book, Come Closer, and they're all very different. She's she's now kind of in the last few years she's written a sort of she started writing a crime series about a, a kind of private investigator called Claire Dewitt, which by the way are absolutely brilliant books. As those three books are absolutely terrific, but this book, Come Closer, I don't even know where to start. Right. It's, it's a novella, right? It's really short. You could read it, honestly, in one sitting. And it's kind of, the central premise is, is about a woman who may or may not be possessed by a demon and is therefore, you know, going mad. But she might not be possessed by a demon. It might just be, you know, she's having a nervous breakdown or she's having a, you know, a psychological incident or something like that. And it's and it's it's so brilliantly done, and the attitude of all her writing is is amazing. But there's um, there's something about this because it's just it's absolutely dripping with misanthropy. She just she just hates the main character is just just couldn't give less of a fuck about the world, and and it's, it's such a joy to read. And considering she hasn't written any other horror, I mean, all the other books are really the first one's kind of literary. The latter ones have been crime. I mean, but the horror element of it is just sort of drip fed. I mean, it's gradually, you know, nothing, you're not quite sure. She's hearing noises about the house uh, and sort of weird things are happening and they're not quite sure. And sort of a little odd things happen for the first 50 pages. And then it just it gradually escalates and escalates until it takes you to a place that is unbelievably dark. And yet you're, st- you're still laughing kind of through it because it's kind of like, they just the absolute balls to write that. I think is is incredible. And you mentioned, you know, maybe writers that I'm I'm not as well known. How did you stumble upon her? Quite a lot of my the books in my my middle period were published by Faber and Faber, uh, and my editor there, Angus Cargill, uh, he went on to publish these crime novels, these three these three Claire DeWitt books. Now he definitely sent me the first Claire DeWitt one, but I'm sure I already had somehow stumbled across Come Closer before that in a bookshop. And there's the book, other book that she's written is a kind of 1950s heroin addict thing set in New York, which is like a really strange kind of thing as well. But I mean, let's credit Angus and Sarah. Angus that put me on to, to Sarah just because, I mean, he's always been, he's not my editor anymore, by the way, but um, I'm with a different publisher now. But he was always very good at putting me on to writers who he thought I would like. And he was almost always right. <laughs> he and I always had a, 
very similar taste in, in music and in books as well. We're about roughly about the same age. I mean, he first um, pointed me towards uh, Willie Vlotten, who's another absolutely brilliant American novelist, and Kent Haruf was another one, uh, who's another American uh, writer as well. So I think he just said, oh, you'll like this. You'll like this, Sarah Grant. And yeah, that was totally, he was absolutely right. I mean, in terms of the, the kind of books that you write, do you, do you read a lot of crime books, for example, because you're, you know quite often you're maybe writing in that genre, or, or do you, is your taste in reading quite varied? Yeah, it's very varied anyway. I don't come from a crime writing background. I didn't grow up reading crime novels particularly. People kind of find this hard to believe, but I was literally unaware of genres. You know, I, I just read books. My dad was a, had been an English teacher, so there was you know, hundreds of books in the house. And I would just pick up anything, literally anything, and read it. And that included like plays and poetry and short stories as well as novels and whatever else. And I would read science fiction and I would read literary fiction and crime and horror and anything else. Honestly, anything. And it's kind of stuck. It's kind of stuck with me. As a journalist, I still do some book reviewing. So, and that's across, that's across all genres and whatever, non-fiction as well as fiction as well. So I do tend to read really widely. I do read a lot of crime fiction because I think it's important to be across whatever's happening in your, you know, whatever field you're doing. But the kind of stuff that I write, I mean, it's, it's, I'm very happy for it to be described as crime fiction, but it's not necessarily what people would first think of when you say crime fiction. So the stuff I write tends to be around the sort of edges of crime fiction, psychedelic thriller, domestic noir, I don't know. It, it, doesn't, really, it doesn't really concern writers what, what genre they get put into as long as people are buying or reading the books. And so that's the kind of stuff that I like to read as well, like... Sarah Gran is, is an obvious one. Megan Abbott is another American writer who is very definitely a crime writer, but writes very unusual books in, t- in terms of content and style. Laura Lipman is another one. James Salas, who are all writing kind of stuff that you might not think of as conventional mysteries or stuff like that. Um, that's the kind of, and Helen Fitzgerald in, in this country, in Scotland, is another writer who I think is, is brilliant and definitely writing crime fiction, but not what you'd think of as, think of as classical crime fiction. I mentioned in the introduction, we've kind of touched on this three book series. The first one, A Dark Matter, and then The Big Chill. But it was inspired, you, you spent a bit of time as a writer in residence at a firm of funeral directors, which when I was reading through your potted biography, that alone kind of jumps out as slightly different. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it sounds really stupid, but they literally put an advert in the paper looking for, in fact, they weren't looking for a writer in residence. They were looking for an artist in residence, like of any kind. So it could have been playwright, could have been a physical, you know, a painter or a sculptor, or I don't know why else. And so I applied, and I and I got. I was very lucky to get the job. It was really, it was a really quite a profound experience working for them actually. And the central premise was, so my my pitch to them was that I I didn't actually use any fiction writing skills. I was using my journalism, and the end result was actually a small non-fiction book which didn't get published they just kept it in-house and they hand it out to um, new employees and stuff like that but the idea was to try and give the staff a voice and to try and give them a bit of time and space to think about uh, the work they do and how it affects their attitudes towards life and death so I, I, I interviewed lots of people I interviewed as many of the staff as I could and I sort of job shadowed people and um, so I did I sort of sat in on all parts of the business from arranging funerals conducting funerals picking up the deceased from care homes or whatever, you know, sitting in on embalmings or stuff like that. I did all of that stuff. And there was a, there was a running joke, uh, like all the staff. I mean, they were unbelievably nice people. And I came away with a huge amount of respect 
for them and the empathy they show. But there was a running joke that like they'd all say, oh, you'll get plenty of stuff for your books here, eh? You'll get plenty of material, eh? And I was like, at the time, I was like, well, no, I don't think I will because crime fiction especially relies on conflict and tension, right? You know, that's what you're, that's the whole point of fiction. Uh, and the whole point of what they're doing is to try and defuse conflict and tension at an incredibly stressful time for, you know, the bereaved and stuff like that. So I kind of said, I kind of thought, well, no. And I genuinely finished that job and I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to write anything about that. You know, I'm, I was very, I was also slightly wary of using that experience or exploiting it, if you know what I mean. But it took a few years and then I thought, I'll just exploit it. No, I, I just, <laughs> no. I, I mean, it, I did, it took, it took a lot. It was a few years after I did it before that I kind of idea formed to think of it more like a backdrop for something so that it infuses kind of the story rather than being the driving driving point of the story. Uh, and hopefully, you know, Touchwood, I've, I've treated, the, treated the situation and the, and the, and the experience with, with the respect that they deserve. Am I right in saying, and again, it may have just been something I read, that the first book, A Dark Matter, apart from the fact that it was, I think it was long-listed for the McIlvany Prize for Crime Book of the Year, but it's, you know, there's a possibility that might be getting adapted for TV. Well, yes, uh, so that's a long way away, yeah, but it's uh, the, taking the first step. It's been uh, auctioned by uh, a Glasgow production company called Blazing Griffin, who who seem to know what they're doing. They've got a bit of experience and they're working with, you know, some other really good writers like Chris Brookmeyer and Malcolm Mackay and stuff like that. So, yeah, that is ongoing. They've optioned it. So we have a, a little bit of funding and a screenwriter is putting together a treatment and then we're going to try and get more funding from, you know, or take it to channels and see what happens, see if it can, we can get it commissioned. But So it's a million miles away, but I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a good start. And I think it does seem like a kind of good setup for, I mean, the, the, the basic central premise is, apart from the fact that it's in a funeral directors and they're solving crimes as well, because there's a private investigators at the same time, that there's three generations of women from the same family. So there's a 70-year-old Dorothy, 45-year-old Jenny, and 20-year-old Hannah in the first, that's the ages they are in the first book. Uh, and so there's three very strong female roles there for actresses, for actors. And so I, I think, you know, I could see it. I could see it as a TV show, but whether, whether it actually gets made or not, God knows. I suppose it also, I mean, at the very least, it validates the quality, the fact that somebody's read that and, and seen the cinematic potential of it. Because one of the other books, your, your book, Fault Lines, when I read that, I thought that's absolutely something that you could see, whether it's in the smaller, big screen. That, that jumped out at me right away. Yeah, well, that's very kind of you, Paul. The problem is that uh, you need a massive special effects budget because you've got a whole island, a fictional island that you need to then blow up at the end of the book. No spoilers. I kind of think if you, if you need fault lines, it's basically it's, there's a volcanic, a new volcanic island in the fourth and fourth. And my feeling was you can't really spoil that because if you have a brand new island with an active volcano on it in chapter one, then you know it's going to blow at some point in the book, isn't it? So, yeah, I, but I mean, that's more of a, I can imagine Tom Cruise muscling his way across like a volcanic landscape. That's more of a big budget Hollywood thing, I think. Yeah, that would that would do quite well if he was he was your leading man. Um, in terms of your book choices, I take you from the book that you would recommend to anyone to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And you obviously, again, you've mentioned it already that you know in the course of your work as a journalist, you've reviewed countless books, some that you've obviously liked better than than others. So it's, I suppose it's difficult to then pinpoint one. And and like other people have chosen when they've chosen this. And again, it refers to what you said to me. You said you don't want to name writers that are still alive. So a couple of people have actually deliberately chosen somebody that's dead because they can't offend them then. 
<laughs> yeah, well, it's it's really. I mean, I don't know what other writers do with this question, but it's it's kind of because I mean, we all read books that we don't get on with. Really, quite a lot of the time. Me, probably more than most, because I well, certainly when I started reviewing, I would just get given books. So I mean, nowadays I do a little bit less reviewing, and I can kind of pick and choose. I pitch stuff to. I write for the Big Issue uh, magazine. I kind of pitch stuff to them. So it's stuff that I think I'm going to like. So I don't I don't review many bad books now, thank goodness. Um, but I certainly did my fair share just to earn a few quid. And I, <laughs> back in the day, uh, but it's really even a book that you hate, you realise how much effort has gone into it. Even if you think, oh, this is the worst piece of crap I've ever read in my life. <laughs> Someone spent a year creating that piece of crap, uh, and they, all, <laughs> they obviously believe in it. So it is a really tricky one, actually. It's really hard. But I did, I did opt for. I mentioned earlier on about my, I didn't have a, I did not have a great experience with literature at school, uh, and this is one that we got given. We got given J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings trilogy, not just one book, but all three. I think that must have been in maybe fourth year at school, and we all had to buy it. I think. I definitely had a copy of it somewhere for a while. I mean, that is a surprising book to give like fourth or fifth years at school. As you say, because of just even just the, the size of it is quite daunting. Yeah, I couldn't really understand. I mean, was, you know, don't get me started on that English teacher. We did not get on at all. But it, yeah, it's like I didn't really, I couldn't understand. I was so, I mean, it was all just like uh, hobbits and dwarves and like elves and stuff and like wizards. So I was like, oh, what is this? I just could not get on with it, and it's like, have you have you ever have you read any Tolkien? It's like I've I've read The Hobbit. I've never read Lord of the Rings. Well, The Hobbit was kind of almost designed as a, a children's book, wasn't it? I think right? it was meant to be for a younger audience, so it's kind of slightly more simple. But this, like, it just really goes to town with the world building, and it's you know it's not badly written on a sentence by sentence level. But he's just got. I mean, there's whole passages that are like talking about how the Elvish language came about and. You know, massive, big, long sidetracks about how various different collections of beings have come to be and like the history and all this sort of stuff of, um, what is it, Middle Earth. And I just like, oh, I just thought it was, it was really self-indulgent. And at that age, I couldn't, I just couldn't get my head around that at all. It almost goes back to, you know, quite often when I've asked people about that teenage student book, and often it's the book that they get maybe in their kind of fourth, fifth year. That could sometimes be the book that kind of turns them onto literature. The other side of that coin is you get something like that, and that could turn people off because they think if this is what adult books are, are like, nah, that's not for me. I mean, it's I guess Tolkien he could tell a story like the like the three Lord of the Rings movies, decent enough movies, I think they're kind of all right. I mean, the storytelling is there. You got your big battle scenes and you know what have you, and then you've got your although there is an argument that they go for like nine hours in the movies and then right at the end, they just get a massive eagle to fly them over the, to drop the ring in the big volcano or whatever it is. Why couldn't they just do that at the start? <laughs> you know, and save yourself uh, nine hours of film or a thousand pages of story. But yeah, you have to be very careful. And I think that idea of putting people off literature, I think it happens all the time. Uh, I know that like my son doesn't particularly get on with, uh, you know, the kind of stuff that he's been given to read. But then it's, ha- it's hard because you can't, if you're a teacher, you know, you're not going to find stuff that, that suits everyone. It's, it's a matter of people finding their own way a little bit or people, you know, finding someone useful, like a bookseller or a librarian that's going to actually turn them on to the right kind of thing. I mean, how did you, you know, you mentioned the fact that your dad was an English teacher. Did he, obviously, then there's books in the house when you were younger. Was he always encouraging you to read? But, or again, did he just let you choose your own path in terms of that? I mean, he was encouraging, but it was, I mean, it wasn't, yeah, he just let me, he just let me do my own thing. He did get, he, he got me that Raymond Carver 
collection where I'm calling from, which I almost picked as a sort of book, you know, that, that most impressed me when I was a sort of teenager, because you could see that I was interested in books and in reading and writing, but that I wasn't getting any of that stimulation that I, that I wanted from school. So he was kind of rooting around. And he also, there was things like, uh, this, is, this seems like a, a weird memory, and I kind of wonder if I've made it up. I don't think I did. We were, all the poetry we did at school was like Wilfred Owen, like war poetry. I just didn't care about it, you know, for whatever reason. But my dad actually gave me a book of Seamus Heaney poems. He, he sort of, we picked one and he did the sort of higher English analysis of it with me. And I ended up doing that in my higher, like in my actual higher. I didn't do all the poetry I learned at school. I didn't, I didn't write about that. I wrote about Seamus Heaney and I got an A, so great. When, uh, when I was at school, and I always remember this in fourth year, and one of the poems that we studied for English was Waterloo Sunset, the, the kink song. And the wow. teacher, I, I remember as clear as, I've still actually got the original sheet that he gave us. So he came in and he handed round and it just said Waterloo Sunset. And it was so we just thought it was a poem. And he had a big, massive cassette recorder, you know, big, massive thing, puts it on his, planks it on his desk, puts the cassette in, puts his feet up on the desk and played it. And it took us a few seconds to link what we were hearing to what was in front of us. And it was just, it was revelatory after that. We just, I just remember everybody loving it. I mean, the song is amazing. And then when he actually started to explain the poetry of of the lyrics, and it was such a brilliant thing for a teacher to have done. And apart from the fact that I discovered the kinks then as well, but I love that as as a poem. That, when was that? What year was that? I was very forward thinking. That would have been about 1981, 82. I was wow. five. But okay. Yeah, 1981 it would have been. We've got to the, the final question in the podcast, and that is the last book you read or the book you're currently reading, and it's XX by Rianne Hughes. I finished this not long ago, actually. I want to talk about this. It's absolutely bonkers. You were talking about you know what sort of things you read, and you do get a little sense of if you keep reading in the same genre, or whatever, of reading kind of very familiar stuff. So this is I'd never read anything like this at all. I've been reading a lot of science fiction recently. I've come. I, I'm actually planning on writing a science fiction book, so I'm kind of immersing myself in loads of science fiction. But this is crazy, right? It's about having said that about Lord of the Rings. This is a, this is almost a thousand pages, but it's a. It, it's called a novel, comma, graphic, as opposed to a graphic novel. It's, it's kind of a, it is a graphic novel. It's a hardback thing. It's a beautiful item. And it is, it's a kind of first contact sci-fi story. So the basic story is, starts off something quite familiar, like a bunch of scientists at the George Bank telescope get a, get a signal from deep space somewhere. And as the story progresses, it becomes clear that this signal isn't a message from aliens that it's actually the aliens themselves encoded into digital form who can then be recreated in a kind of virtual idea space like the internet on Earth. And that's just the starting point. It goes nuts. I think it goes absolutely crazy. Uh, Rian Hughes is the author. He's also a typographer and a graphic designer, like invented typefaces and fonts and stuff like that himself. And he uses the, the type, the typefaces and fonts in the book in an extraordinary way. It's, I mean, it's something you can't really explain without just flicking through it. Because there's, I mean, it's the most crazy thing I think I've ever, ever read. It's just absolutely bonkers. And there's a bit, because so there's these sort of three virtual characters. One of them's called XX, uh, and that stands for the 20th century. He's kind of like, the, he's like a 20th century meme. And there's a 21st century one, which is a girl whose like face keeps moving, who just keeps taking selfies and talks and tweets. 
but this is all kind of in, in, in a kind of virtual space. And then there's these millions of aliens that are kind of, they're in a virtual grid set across the entire of Earth and they have to try and get to the middle of it. I don't know, it's, it goes nuts. At the same time, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening on the moon. I don't know why, they just, when they meet an actual real alien who then downloads its, its whole brain into this astronaut. The end, for the last like 100 pages or so, it kind of manages to mix like proper thriller, like Jesus, what's going to happen next, with some absolutely mind-boggling stuff about the nature of existence in the universe and kind of big philosophical questions and all that sort of stuff, all at the same time somehow. I don't know, it's bonkers. Is it one of those books where, I'm not sure if you can say that you, you enjoy it the way you enjoy like a, a normal narrative novel, but it's just something that is so different that you're actually not quite sure what you're reading at times, but you know it's just something so unusual that it's brilliant, but you don't know why. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's, it's weird because there is a kind of conventional story in there. And there's, and there's bits of it that are written in normal prose, in a normal typeface. But it's kind of so much more. I mean, it goes off on these like weird tangents, like typographical tangents. And there's, you know, I mean, you, it's a thousand pages or so or whatever it is. But you can, there's a lot of stuff you can flip through quite quick because sometimes there's just like one word or a picture on a page for 50 pages or something like that. Or some weird code that you think you don't understand. But as you keep flicking over, you actually gradually start to understand some of the patterns of the little shapes. It's sort of, it's sort of yeah, it's, it's not like a conventional enjoyment to, to this book, but it is. But yeah, you just read it and you're constantly, like your mind's getting blown. It's like all the ideas and it's like, oh, oh wow. Oh, now, now what's happening? Oh, she can just flip through virtual space from the moon to earth and back. That's clever. It's all sorts of weird, crazy things happening. I mean, in terms of, you know, it's quite nice. You start off with uh, the Asterix books. It's like in a picture, obviously books that are illustrated you're talking about a graphic novel. Do you read, have you read, or do you read much in terms of graphic novels at all? I do. I've been reading more of that kind of stuff, a lot more actually recently. There's a couple, there's a few writers like, and um, there's one, Adrian Tomini, who uh, who just had a uh, had a graphic memoir out. He's a, he's a cartoonist for like the New Yorker and stuff like that. Um, but he also does, his last book was called Killing and Dying, which was a brilliant collection of graphic short stories, I want to call it. It was kind of like individual little stories, but they're beautifully and they're beautifully drawn and incredibly poignant kind of stories. And that was brilliant. And the other one that I, I love that I bought three of these books is Simon Stallenhag. It's a Swedish guy who writes the kind of big format hardback things that are like 1980s, like retro sci-fi it's about, actually, it's called Tales from the Loop. They actually, I think Amazon have made a series of the first book, I think, which is kind of a bit like the Twilight Zone crossed with, I don't know, retro-futuristic sci-fi. So it's about uh, weird things that happen around an, an old particle accelerator in the sort of, in the Swedish countryside. Weird things like start appearing in animals and, and robots and stuff like that. I do get more and more into graphic novels. I find that really interesting form, actually. I mean, I'm, I, mean I wish I could draw because I'm absolutely hopeless at drawing. I think I think graphic novels or comics are kind of definitely being taken a lot more seriously now as as literature in a way that they weren't even ten years ago. And I think that's great. I think it's, you know, again, another form of storytelling if you can if you can do it effectively, then brilliant. You mentioned the fact that you're now planning on doing a into sci fi novel is that's obviously a different a completely different challenge for you as, as a writer because at first thought I'm thinking that that must be quite freeing because it's you make up your own universe you make up the kind of own parameters of what you want to write about but that that still presents its own challenges because you can't just write anything it still needs to be believable within whatever world that you're writing about i've wanted to write a science fiction novel for a long time but I, like a lot of things i kind of put it off and worried about exactly that about the about knowing enough about the genre and knowing enough about to make it believable but i've kind of been i've been so immersed in 
in the genre actually for for the last while and i've got some i've got an idea that i kind of uh, people think that you write stuff because you plan it but very often it's just the ideas that you can't you can't get rid of in your head that you just feel you have to write and so that that's what this is going to be having said that it will be i don't know it's i'm not it's not like a it's not like a big expansive ian banks culture novel um sadly no one can write them except for ian i think but it's definitely going to be it's not going to be, oh, is it a little bit maybe sciencey or maybe is it a bit? No, it's definitely going to have science fiction in it. But it is, it is another interesting challenge. It's a deliberate way, a deliberate attempt to challenge myself again. I, I did that with the, with the Skelf books, with these trilogies. That's the first time I'd written more than one book with the same characters. And that was deliberate as well. Three different points of view as well. So I, I think like most writers, you know, you're always trying to challenge yourself. Uh, otherwise, you just get bored trying to write the same book again and again. So that's what I'm doing here, trying to write some crazy-ass science fiction. I mean, I take it, I, again, you touched on it earlier on, that idea of, as a journalist, you, you couldn't have the luxury of writer's block because how do you earn any money then, or how do you keep a job? And in terms of, of your job now as a writer, I take it there's always, there's never just one idea. There's, as you say, there's other ideas bubbling under. Maybe one day you're working on something completely different just because that, that idea just wants to push itself out and something will eventually emerges, the one that takes over. Yeah, and stuff, and stuff always takes, I find anyway, stuff can take years, like years and years. Yeah, like I had a comedian 10 years or longer between initially getting an idea or just thinking I want to write about this and actually, you know, and not sitting down explicitly to work on it, but just sort of eventually something bubbles to the surface or you find the right format or right vehicle or the right kind of characters for the thing you want to write about or whatever. Uh, yeah, it can take absolutely forever. Uh, and there's no point in trying to force it. I mean, I, I've never really... Yeah I've, got, yeah, I've got loads of ideas for stuff. But I think if you if we were to try and force like an idea that wasn't, wasn't ready yet, then, and then you would really struggle. And hopefully, I'll touch wood, I haven't had that experience yet. Long may that continue. Because one of the other things I was going to ask, and again, I've, I've read various things online of some just writerly discussions of the challenges that the, the kind of the lockdown and the pandemic will cause, particularly to contemporary writers, because... You know, people might have been working, as you say, some, somebody could have been working on something for a, for a while, but what's happened in 2020 might change how they approach whatever story, because, you know, prior to 2020, that there's a certain type of world now, it's a, it's a completely different uh, environment. I mean, we're still in the, you know, slap bang in the middle of a pandemic. If you try and write about that now, I think you're on a height of nothing, because, you know, if, if I'm writing a book now, it comes out in a year's time, God knows what like the situation is going to be in years time you know we might not be over it at all we might be worse off than we are now so i think trying to second guess that stuff is you're on a hiding of nothing and the other thing is that actually the, you know the nature of this lockdown and the pandemic is that it is inherently weirdly undramatic because we all have to stay at our home stay in our houses and do nothing and not interact which is is kind of the very antithesis of the kind of things i like to write so i think I don't, I'd be surprised if publishers are looking for COVID books, you know, for COVID thrillers or whatever. God forbid if one comes out, I'll not be reading it because I, mean, I think people have, people have had enough of it that they don't want to read about it just now. But it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. My Skelf books have been, they're kind of contemporary. They're in the now, but they're not specifically dated. So it could be last year, you know, it could be pre-pandemic. And I haven't made any allowances in the third book that I wrote for it. But this, you know, but again, that'll probably come out this time next year. So depending on what the situation is, I might have to address it or I might have to make out that, it, you know, it happened before. I, I just think it's hard to do anything for sure now because we're still up to our neck in it, you know. 
and you mentioned, you know, very quite early on about the fact that you'd written the first draft of the, the third book in this series. And are you now at that point where, again, you touched on the fact you'd really love the, the editing process? Is that the point that you're going to get back into it and then go on to the next draft and change it up or edit it or do, do whatever you, before you, you send it out into the world? Well, uh, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing the second draft now and quite enjoying that. And then it's a few more weeks of that and then probably a third draft and then let my agent see it and get some feedback. And then a fourth draft, at least maybe a fifth, and then uh, let my editors see it, and then there'll be more edit structural lines and otherwise for that. And so that all takes all that all takes time. And at any point, you know, depending on you know, there'll be discussions about things like COVID or whether we are just going to ignore it and set the book in 2019, or you know, take a chance and, and see what happens. I mean, it, it wouldn't be central to any book that I would write, but if you're setting the book in a world where COVID has happened, then you have to at least acknowledge that. Because my, my books especially are kind of as usually as realistic as possible in terms of setting and time and that kind of stuff. And I'm very kind of particular about physical geography, for example, and things like that. So if I was to set a book in, you know, if it comes out in 2021 and it's set in 2021, then it will have to be with an acknowledgement that COVID has happened or is happening. And I suppose the other thing, finally, I was just going to ask in, in terms of, we touched on it again, the, the fun-loving crime writers. Uh, are, you, are you still banging away in the drums just in, in the house, keep, keep making sure you're still, you're still in time for when you can all get together again? <laughs> yeah, I am. The drum kit's right here in my office. It's the only, only place that there's room for it. So, um, so yeah, I'm still uh, drumming away, um, having a bit of a practice. And we've got a little WhatsApp group with the band and we're just absolutely champing at the bit kind of waiting for I mean you know we're definitely not going to be playing any gigs this year and God knows about next year but I mean if we can even um, if travel situation um, gets better and we can maybe try and get a rehearsal day somewhere to be in a, a well-ventilated room together <laughs> uh, and hopefully fingers crossed we can try and get back to some of that normality. Absolutely well listen uh, Doug it's been uh, a real joy talking to you about uh, books and music and everything else if anybody wants to find out any of Doug's book choices just go to my website, www.paulcuddehy.com, and every guest on the podcast has their own page. And I just list the books and the, and the various book choices. But as I say, it's, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, the book chat and, and good luck with all the, the book projects that you're working on. Cheers. Thanks very much, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.